0: Hello, everybody. This is Jason Harding.
1: And this is Steve Shives.
0: And Steve has something he'd like to say to everyone. Don't you, Steve?
1: Yeah. Okay, so look, guys. Here's what happened. I know that we asked you to watch The Sandlot because, well, yeah, we, did. because we were going to review it in this episode, but mm-hmm. um, I, I was unable to successfully record my half of the show.
0: He thought he was. We did the whole show. We did we, the, we did a whole show. And it
1: was good.
0: It was so funny. It was
1: good. Um, I got
0: real angry. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you did. And now nobody will ever hear it.
0: Now I'm angry for a different reason.
1: So, yeah.
0: Tell them, Steve. Tell them what we're going to do instead.
1: Well, instead of just doing the show over, uh, we're going to skip this one, and instead we're going to let you hear one of our old episodes, which is our review of the classic film Citizen Kane, which I, b- I believe is from way back in the YouTube days.
0: It's way back, uh, YouTube, in 2014, and it's weird, because we're still nice to each other. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't joke nearly as much, yeah. and the sound quality's really off. And there's a whole bunch of snarky stuff that we don't do now that we did do back then. Like make fun of pe- other people's
1: opinions. Yeah, boy, thank goodness we don't do that anymore, huh? Yeah. So <laughs> it's a little it's 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 just a little blast from the past to make up for the fact that I completely fucked up and ruined this week's show.
0: Yeah. And if you guys are really looking forward to the sandlot thing, the main reason why we're not going to re record it or attempt to re record it is number one, my recording schedule is really packed. Yeah. And number two, if we did it again, it wouldn't it would lack the spontaneity of the original recordings when we when we sit down and record. We don't rehearse anything. We just sit down and we record. And that spontaneity is one of the things that I feel makes the show funny. And if we attempted to uh, you know, yeah, just re-record it again. The jokes would—we'd probably be repeating ourselves. The jokes would be a little stale, and it wouldn't make for an overall really good show. And besides which, if I get as angry again over *The Sandlot*. I'll probably stroke out.
1: Yeah. Well, and plus, uh, you you would have the added anger of you would then probably turn your rage against me because it's, it's more than likely because, because I had me. to relive it. <laughs> yeah. So it's just better for everybody, especially me, but everybody that we just uh-huh. we just let this one sit for a while.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I might actually play a clip of it because it's on my side, of just how angry I get. <laughs> <laughs> In which I go into a very long monologue about Babe Ruth.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: But then again, without Steve's side of it, it may just sound like the babbling incoherence of a lunatic. But
1: That could be uh, good, too. Hey, do we we want to tell them what the next movie is? Just in case we're successfully able to record a new episode in two weeks?
0: Maybe we'll actually get to this one. We'll get it on the air. Yeah. The next one we're going to do... Is Zack Snyder's magnum opus? Oh boy, three hundred.
1: Yeah, so so go watch so, three hundred. So
0: for real, honestly, yeah. I know you guys feel real burnt if you guys watch yeah. the Sandlot and you're not getting the Sandlot. Now, I am
1: so sorry that you had to watch the Sandlot for no reason. Your
0: actions have repercussions. Too. I am.
1: I know. I know. It is. It's. It. You know what it is. It's. It's impact, <laughs> not intentions. That's so, right. Yes, so, I'm very sorry, but I promise we will have a 300 show. You will not be watching 300 for nothing.
0: And also know that if you did watch The Sandlot, we did too, so we suffered with you.
1: That, you know what? We yeah. weren't alone. I didn't. You weren't alone. Yeah, I didn't think about that. So you know what? To, to, to hell with you people for making me grovel. We had oh to watch it too. <laughs> I don't owe you a show. It was a mistake. I didn't this do it on not- purpose. It was a mistake. The hatch just blew! (laughs) It was a glitch! It was a
0: technical malfunction! Why in hell would anyone believe me? Okay. So that's it. Everyone sit back. Uh, Thanks for the non apology, Steve. I am really sorry, though.
1: (laughs) I am, in all seriousness, I am very sorry.
0: So sit back, (laughs) relax. And listen to a really old rerun from our show when it was all nacy and weird and goopy. It just come out of the, <laughs> the big podcast vagina, and it just cleared away in the afterbirth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, ugh, boy, it's raw. Still
1: had the umbilical cord hanging off, hadn't yeah. quite fallen off yet.
0: That's not how that works!
1: <laughs> you know...
0: The umbilical cord doesn't fall off.
1: We were still breathing our mother's amniotic fluid as as babies do for the first few weeks.
0: Yeah. Boy, we're leaving them with a really gross image. Anyway. I'm sorry.
1: I don't know how reproduction uh. happens.
0: <laughs> anyway, guys, thanks for understanding. I hope you enjoy this old repeat. And um, we promise next time, 300... Or there'll be a new co-host. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> or you, you can look forward to the next new episode of Late Sitting, co-hosted by Jason and somebody. And else. And
0: Andrew. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, hey Andrew, buddy! Cross your fingers <laughs> that the next one screws up too, because this is your shot.
0: He's looking up how to hack into your into your computer yeah. right now. <laughs> exactly. <sighs> All right. Thanks, everybody, and thanks for thanks for your understanding and patience. Are you going to say anything else? uh, I am. I'm sorry. Okay, let's start the music up. Okay. And now go cut me a switch. Don't worry about me! I'm Charles Foster Kane! I'm no cheap, crooked
1: politician!
0: Hey everybody, welcome to Late Seating with Steve Shimes and Jason Harding. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Uh, This week, we are going to be um, reviewing the little-known, seldom-seen, and entirely obscure movie called Citizen Kane. Can a movie about a man who is brought down by his own weaknesses and ego have any relevance to anything that's going on in this modern day and age? We'll find out. Um, Once again, I'm going to make this statement, despite the fact that this movie is more than 60 years old. There will be spoilers in this review. <laughs> so if you haven't seen Citizen Kane, go out, watch it. You can even rent it on YouTube, of all places. And um, watch the movie, then come back, see our review, and then become very angry at our opinions. It's perfectly fine. We, we're, we accept the, the people who really disagree with us. I've been reading the comments. Um, but to start off, I'm going to start the review with Steve. Take it away.
1: Hey, hey! Um, well, you know, we, Citizen Kane is one of those movies that we were we were talking a second ago before we went on the air. It's one of those movies that every, everybody has heard about, but it seems like not a whole lot of people have actually seen. Uh, at least people from more or less the current generation. But it's one of the, it's 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 still sort of a consensus pick for greatest film of all time, or at least greatest American film of all time. Um, it's kind of come down and in, in that. I think it was it was number two or number three in the sight and sound poll most recently and it had been number one for like decades and decades. Uh, but it's, you know, one of those movies that always gets mentioned when people say what's the greatest film of all time is if there could ever be one particular answer to that question that would apply across the board to everybody. But uh, yeah, and I have to say, I don't think, in my opinion, it's, it's not my favorite movie. It's not what I would pick as the greatest film I've ever seen. But I think it's right up there. Uh, there is so much about Citizen Kane to admire, uh, in terms of its style, in terms of how well it's directed, in terms of its performances, its writing, the really wonderful subtle things that it does in its screenplay that I that I admire greatly. Uh, so, you know, even though I there are movies that I like better, I have to say I'm not. If someone says you know Citizen Kane's the greatest film ever made, I'm probably not going to fight too hard. You know, I could say something. I could say, well, what about you know, uh, Ikiru or what about uh, you know, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, another great film that I love, or or you know, uh, any uh, a bunch of other movies. But Citizen Kane, if we're gonna say what's the greatest film of all time, it's not. It's I don't think it's actually that bad of a pick. Um,
0: <laughs> that's a glowing review. You could put it right on the poster.
1: Not that bad of a flick. It's you know,
0: a good way to spend your Saturday.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um
0: I feel more or less the same way. Um is it the greatest film ever made? No, probably not. But how can you apply that to any movie? Um movies you know, it doesn't span genres. It's not a sci-fi drama, thriller, horror. You know, it can't <laughs> it can't do that. Movies have to be um Um, reviewed within the context of what it is that they're trying to accomplish. Is it one of the greatest dramas ever made? Certainly. Is it within my top ten of my favorite films? Absolutely. I I wouldn't even be able to tell you what my number one favorite film of all time is. Um, It's one of those films, if you love movies and you want to see kind of the birth, the very first start, of modern cinema, where a camera moves, where special effects are used to help tell a story, but they're not, you know, spaceships flying around or moving dinosaurs or a giant ape doing anything. You, you go to this, where you want to really f- experience cinematic storytelling, where there is, uh, I'm going to have a caveat to this, where things are, told, are shown to you, not told to you, this is that movie. This is the movie where, before movies up to this point, they were static camera. You know, no one acknowledged. You know, no one moved the camera. Maybe it would pan a little bit, but they were usually static shots of a room, or you know, they'd cut away to another static shot of something else. Um, this movie had a lot of technical um, uh, breakthroughs that other people would lift. Up to this day, people borrow from Citizen Kane, whether they know they're doing it or not. So as far as historically how important this movie is, I can't touch that. Citizen Kane is historically very important because it has influenced most, a lot of the directors to, uh, to this point in uh, cinema history. Um, as far as it being a story-wise, I have some problems... With the way they tell their story, and I, I will say that my biggest problem with this story, um, the way they tell it, is the first i would say ten minutes literally tells you everything that you 're going to find out in the rest of the film. it is a It begins with a newsreel story, and it beat for beat tells every single goddamn thing we 're going to learn. In the rest of the film, and I always found that really odd that they would lay out everything that happens in this guy's life, and then we would go back and watch it again. I always felt that that newsreel they should have just cut to Charles Foster came dead, and then cut directly into the people who are who are going to be investigating. Um, Kane's death, and do it from that point on. That way, you leave something for people late, you know, so that you can discover things as you go on. That really felt like we got to put something in there for the dummies, or they're not going to be able to get it. <laughs> and you know, there were some great shots in there. I mean, um, rewatching it again. Whoa, uh oh, that's me. Just a second, I'm sorry, but uh, something is gone on. I'm so sorry about that, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, what I was going to say is in the opening shots, just from a technical aspect, Kane with Hitler is so goddamn convincing. Yeah. I, I actually went back and looked at it again to see if they hadn't inserted him, to see if it was an actor portraying Hitler. When I saw that, I was like, holy God, that's better than everything in Forrest Gump. Everything in Forrest Gump, just chuck it out, because that little shot of Cain meeting Hitler um, was thoroughly impressive to me. And to be impressed by a movie that's more than 60 years old right now uh, is a testament to how good it is. Um, So I think what we can do now is move into the greater themes of the film itself and kind of pick it apart. I have my opinions on it, uh, Steve. What do uh, how do you feel about the the overall story and themes of the film?
1: Well, I actually I'm glad you brought up the the newsreel segment at the beginning because I was going to bring that up as what I think is an example of something that the film does really well, which is uh, it you know the old uh, adage of it is better to show than to tell. Yeah. Uh, well, what Citizen Kane does is it tells us. And then it shows us, and what I would say, the way I, the way I watch the film, the way I read the film, I guess would be another way to put it, um, is first we get the newsreel version, the public figure version, the Kane, the historical figure. Yeah. And then as we get told these things again throughout the mm-hmm. film, uh, we discover more of who he actually was as a person. And, we, and I, I always, to me, there's a really wonderful juxtaposition in this film between Kane that we are introduced to through that newsreel at the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, and then when we first see Orson Welles himself, uh, yeah. when he's when and there's that beautiful sh- you talk about the great shots in this movie. There's so many great shots in the movie. One of my favorite shots is the the introduction of Welles when uh, he's in the newspaper office and his uh, lawyer, his manager, you know, mm. like lowers the newspaper to reveal yeah. him. Yeah. And there's young 25-year-old Orson Welles in All His Glory sitting behind the desk, you know, with this kind of a, you know, smug, cocky smirk on his face. Mm-hmm. And it's like this is the guy. Yeah. that the newsreel was talking about. This is the the richest man in the world. This is the tragic historical figure who lived all alone in a castle and blah 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 blah. I mean, this that's this is him. And that's what I like about that. Yeah, I mean, and, in a sense, they are double beats because you are told things twice yeah but when you when you when you hear it the second time it 's in the context of more of a, of a discovery of oh, okay but here 's who the real guy was but then right. there 's another there 's another layer on top of that there 's so much there 's so many complicated things going on here because you always have the issue in Citizen Kane of whether or not you 're being told things through a reliable narrator
0: yeah, I was just going to say that the yeah. reliable narrator really comes into play because there are subtle differences in Cain between who's telling the story about him.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and that sort of, because, speaking of the themes of, uh, of the movie, one of the major themes in the film and one of the most obvious themes is the difficulty that we experience in trying to know other people, especially other people... That are separated from us, that are famous people or historical figures. Uh, I mean, that 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 conflict is introduced right after the end of that newsreel, when the yeah. the reporters are like, "Well, what you know?" The newsreel it tells us all these facts, but it doesn't tell us who he is. You know, tell the
0: unknowable shadow. Figure. The shadow news reporters who are never, <laughs> you know, the main, uh, the basically the lead character in this is in this story. We never get a clear shot of. Right. We get to see a little bit of his face at the very end of the film, but he is so. He is so not the story to the point in which he is in shadow or shot from behind or shot mm-hmm. from a distance. And that is very much on purpose, that he is not he, – he is the frame on which they're going to hang this movie on. He is the guy who has to go around and do all this stuff. But he's going to turn him into such a non-character that he is basically a silhouette of – all of them are. All of the ones that are, are doing this kind of uh, investigation yeah. – afterwards. Um, uh, one of the themes that I, I managed to uh, think of that I, f- I feel is is that this is literally every, we don't know we never will know who Cain is really. Because everything is told from a different perspective. This is not Cain telling his story. This is everyone else telling his story. So the the kind of idea that I got from it was that after death, it is not the things that you accumulated or what you necessarily did in your lifetime. It is what people remember of you when you're gone. Everything about this is told um, as flashbacks, as told by other people in Cain's life. And the end scene, after we've seen all of these people remember who he is, his stuff is being sold off or burned. That's mm-hmm. the other thing. Here's a man who amassed huge amounts of just stuff, and it all amounted to nothing. The only thing that's left of him are the stories that people are, are, are willing to tell. And whether those stories are accurate or not, that's left. that really is left up, up to us. Um, we talked about the unreliable narrator Um, the character of Susan changes dramatically depending on who is telling the story Um, when it was um, when it was Mr. Bernstein telling the story about her about her there is a real love scene where the two of them meet and it's very romantic and he goes upstairs and you kind of forget, oh yeah, he's married, but you know what, (laughs) these two people have real chemistry and she seems kind of dumb but very sweet. When uh, Jedediah starts telling the story of Cain, her character changes completely to a screeching harpy of a woman who, um, you know, uh, obviously... Um, is is Jedediah's version of who she is. Um, and when you finally get her, when she finally comes forward and tells the story, the character changes again to someone who is bore, uh, bored and feels that as she has become a victim of Cain's manipulation and overbearingness and... Um, you know, it, it. And once again, it re- reminds me and 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 kind of reinforces that idea that you are the. When you're gone, the only thing that's left of you is what people say about you. And um, I don't know if that was intentional. I don't know if that was you know they sat down you know uh, Wells and uh, Mankiewicz sat down. Mankiewicz is the the writer, yeah. and said, "Ah, oh, this is what we want the movie to be about." I don't I don't think that they did that, but you know. Looking at it now, that's the kind of feeling I get from it. That nothing is the only thing that's lasting is what people say about you when you're gone. None of your stuff matters. None of you know, none of your achievements matter. It's just how people how you what people you left in your wake, and he left a lot of people in his wake that were obviously very upset.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that uh as someone who who admires the movie, one of the difficulties in talking to people who haven't seen it uh, or or maybe who are skeptical about it because it does have such an aura around it as the greatest film ever made it's yeah. sometimes it's difficult to you know because what if someone asks well what is so great about Citizen Kane yeah. and short of just short of just saying, well, you just should watch it and decide what you think about it, it you know it's hard to answer that question short of just showing them the movie, but I think one answer possibly to what is so great about Citizen Kane in a general sort of way, is that every time you watch it, or even every time you think about it, and you explore it, and you ask questions about it, and you try to pick out themes, uh, the deeper you get into it, the more you find that is just fascinating. I mean, Mm. even a simple question of, well, what is it about? Because that's one of my favorite questions to ask about movies, is what's it really about? You know, because you can always you can always talk in terms of plot or in terms of characters, and and I take a very literal reading of that. But what's it really about? What's the filmmaker really trying to say? And there are so many possible answers with Citizen Kane. You know, it mm-hmm. could be it could be. Uh, the 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 fact that what we leave behind ultimately is the impact we've had on other people you know it could be the self-serving way that we all sort of rewrite our own lives you know the fact that like you said about how the uh, the character of susan changes depending on who is telling the story and people sort of alter her and alter themselves to their own benefit, or to mm-hmm. reflect their own point of view and and as a result, we never really we as the audience can never be sure that we 're getting the true story right. uh, that's a big part of it the the the, the uh, impact of childhood you know yeah. the 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 childhood of Cain and the alienation from his parents and the the,
0: the obvious know. hatred he has for Thatcher. <laughs>
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so much going on, and you could you could pick any one of those things, or a dozen other things that we haven't even mentioned, yeah. and say that's what the movie's about, and it would be a valid answer. And that's one of the things that makes it such an endlessly fascinating movie.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's and it's it's very watchable. That's the other thing. It's that you can just it it's not some people i've i've met said oh they feel that they they're afraid it's too highbrow that it's uh-huh. it's like an art film this is not an art film this is an extraordinarily accessible film that anyone will you know when you sit down they will get right away um, you know the way the story is told there are points in which there are there is some dialogue um, but there are other times where he's telling very vis- – there's, there's a great scene early on when um, uh, Kane is adopted by Thatcher. And they sum up his entire childhood and his attitude toward this one guy with one two-scene shot where he opens up a gift, which happens to be a sled, but it's not his childhood sled. <laughs> And Thatcher leans down, and it's a POV shop looking up at him. It's a pan-up, gigantic Christmas tree, servants, there's a fire in the fireplace. And he goes, well, Charles, and they cut to this kid. <laughs> and he's gripping this sled like it's made out of disease. And he, I, I can't remember what the exact line is, but he has a look on his face that just basically says, "I fucking hate you, and I will always hate you." That is all we get, other than the brief scene at the beginning of his entire childhood. But that's all we really need, because he showed us with those two short scenes, without having to do a huge backstory, um, exactly what it, what his attitude towards this adopted banker um, was was like. And they do they, they do some of that throughout the film. Where there are these just these little shots, the great shot of uh, Susan singing in the opera house, and he does that fantastic pan that actually required two insert stills when they're panning up. They pan up from Susan who's giving a terrible opera performance. They pan all the way up to the two stagehands sitting up in the rafters, and one stagehand turns the other and goes, "That's it. We didn't need. We didn't need anything. We didn't need people going on and on about how terrible she was." He, they, some, it was. It's, it's great visual storytelling that needs to happen more, I think, nowadays, because people, movies have become very congested with exposition. It's probably mm-hmm. why I have a problem with the uh, the beginning of the film, is because I always feel that that opening sh- the opening newsreel, while extraordinarily well done. I especially like the shots that are obviously shot in a way that it's someone has snuck on to Xanadu, which is where uh, Kane lives, and they're shooting it through bushes and behind fences oh, as yeah. he's being pushed around in his cart. That took me a second because I was like, damn, that's like something that was made today. That that feels very, that feels very like guerrilla filmmaking for just that shot, Um uh, but that's one of the reasons why I probably rankle a little bit at the at the newsreel at the beginning, because I, I, I feel that it's exposition for the audience's sake. I can see how artistically they could be threading this through, like, this is what the public believes, and then we're going to go more, per- it's going to become more personal and more narrow focus, and we're going to reveal what the real story was behind it. Um, I think that from a storytelling perspective, uh, myself personally, if I was telling the story, I would want it to be... To be fed to the audience as it develops through.
1: Um, yeah, I, well, I think I I think that it, it's by by telling us first and then showing us. It, yeah. uh, you know, it 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 is like I said earlier. It is it is sort of a double B, but at the same time, it's uh, it's fulfilling that theme of well, who was he really? You know. Mm-hmm. And um, but you know, you mentioned that that awesome pan through the theater or up yeah. the theater. Um, that's an example of how if your standard that you're judging by is how seamlessly the effects integrate into the story, mm-hmm. then Citizen Kane is one of the best effects movies ever made. Yeah. Because there are numerous shots that are trick shots that you don't mm-hmm. even know are trick shots, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's there's the, the famous... Uh, crane shot that kind of uh, goes o- floats over the rooftops and eventually pans down through the skylight into, into the, uh, the, the, the nightclub yeah. Yeah, where Susan is and uh, that's a miniature
0: mm-hmm. um, there's another one where uh oh I think we just lost Steve so I've got a vamp until he comes back I'm not quite sure where he went so I'm just going to mention something and hopefully he will sign back in um Sorry about that, everybody. Um, there is a shot in um, in which uh, Sid, uh, Kane is giving his speech because he's running for governor of New York, and he's going on and on about who he calls Boss uh, Jim. He's an existing politician that he feels is corrupt. He has been dogging him in the newspapers. He's uh, going to tell people that he's going to, uh, to uh, have him arrested and sent to Sing Sing. And um, there is a shot in which they uh, show uh, Big Jim, the, the, the uh, boss that he's talking about, while he's giving the speech. The speech is down below everyone. You can see the audience. You can see Kane on the podium and all that other stuff. And Jim is in the foreground looking down at that proceeding. That is a composite shot. That's literally, I believe they shot that, um, they just did an overlay. Most people wouldn't have noticed it, um, but it was, that's also an effect shot, and there are lots of effect shots in uh, in Citizen Kane that you can either, you either see or don't see. One of the other things in Citizen Kane that um, uh, most people don't notice at first is that he used a, a wide-angle lens to shoot most of it. Um, so that when the camera moves, you become hyper-aware of the camera. That was a risky thing back then. Uh, um, you know, Movies up to that point, they didn't want the audience to think that the camera existed. So um, going wide-angle, moving the camera as much as he did because he was constantly panning in, pulling back. There you are. Hey, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. No problem. I had to vamp. I, I made up a I'm bunch back. of stuff. People think I'm stupid now. <laughs>
1: I'm sorry.
0: I compared Citizen Kane to Tom and Jerry cartoons.
1: Oh my god. What? <laughs> no. Sorry. Anyway. Um, no, back.
0: I was I just described uh, uh, the effect shot of uh, uh is it uh, uh, boss uh Jim Nash when he's looking down at the uh at uh, Kane's uh governor speech where he's when he's running for governor. That's a composite shot. Oh um, yeah. There, I was also going to be talking about how they use deep focus, and there's a, a scene at the very beginning when Cain's uh, mother is giving a, giving him up to the banker, and you pan into the house away from the window, and they, the people in the foreground are in focus, the people in the mid-ground are in focus. There is a window in the back, and you can see little Cain playing. And not only is that yeah. an interesting shot um, to tell us story-wise, but technically... That was a shot that no one else was going to try. No one else was going to do, oh okay, we're gonna do we're gonna composite this shot where it pans back and we're gonna do this and we're gonna be able to see the kid in the background. That thought went into this film that mostly didn't happen in other films.
1: Well, and you know, that that brings up a point I wanted to I wanted to mention is just this was, everybody knows the legend. I mean, th- this is Orson Welles' yeah. first film. This is his very, the, he, he was, you know, he was a star in, on stage and in radio, and this Citizen Kane was his first film. And it's not just that it's such a great movie. It's that it's such an audacious movie. He had mm-hmm. such balls as a filmmaker. There, well, there he, were got guys...
0: a, he got a gift that no one had gotten at all, ever, and yeah. that was Final Cut. Yeah. directors now don't even get final cut but and 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 you know RKO signed this deal they said okay yeah sure we'll give you final cut and had no problem i don't know what they were thinking i guess they wanted him that badly um he i don't think he ever got it again unless he was you know unless it was a production that he was doing when he went off to europe or something like that but um final cut was unheard of so he got to control everything that was going... You're right. He got to control yeah. everything that was going on in the movie. So he got to do whatever he wanted. And maybe it was because he was a first-time director and and there wasn't anyone on the on the set necessarily that was going to say, are you sure you want to pan in? We got to adjust the focus and do this thing. And are you, you, you want to do what? You want to interject in the shadow the past scene that we're just talking about and then pan away from that? How are we going to do that? And it was—it was kind of like when you see a lot of new filmmakers, whether it's in the '70s um, or the '80s, and they come out with an independent film, and no one has told them that you can't do things. They do yeah. things that no one else has done. You know, it was kind of like when uh, pu- uh, Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs came out. Mm-hmm. No one was telling him he can't do what he was going to do when you start splitting up the narrative and scattering it to uh, different characters and di- and different places. No one was telling Tarantino he couldn't do that. He was very intentionally doing that because no one else was doing it. Absolutely. Um, the early films... Uh, George Lucas... George Lucas wanted to do... Um, this is related to uh, to Wells because Wells also wanted to do a version of this. Lucas wanted to do Heart of Darkness and his original idea was to actually go to Vietnam and film it. Like, yeah. when it was still being fought. I really wish we still had that, Lucas. We don't anymore. <laughs> but... Um, no. But there was no one really telling him, you know. No, when he was making American Graffiti, there was no one telling him what you want to do. One night in nineteen, who the fuck wants to watch that? Um, right. There is a there is a quality to this film that makes it stand out to everything that was out at the time, and I think a lot of things contributed. He was given a lot of freedom, and he didn't know what he was doing. And he even admitted it in interviews that he, you know, he did his naivete. To that film helped to make that movie what it was, so
1: yeah, well, and he, the thing about wells was it 's not just that he was uh, that he he basically was given the run of the place and allowed to do whatever he wanted. he was so confident in himself as a director and in wow. himself as a performer as well because he i mean he wasn't a. He was a. He had acted extensively, but on stage and on radio. He wasn't like a veteran film actor, and yet he not only builds the entire film around himself and his performance, mm-hmm. uh, and a very difficult performance, a very tricky performance of going from a young man to an old man and having to do wear makeup and yeah, you
0: when know. you're twenty-five, damn years. Yeah.
1: Yeah and devised <laughs> different ways of walking and moving for the different I mean he, it was a very technically demanding performance mm-hmm. and 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 the movie in a with all of its technical wizardry and all of it, the wonderful stylistic things it does ultimately the movie rises or falls on the success of that central performance.
0: Yeah.
1: Because that's that's the guy. That's Citizen Kane. And if Citizen Kane doesn't work in Citizen Kane, you don't really have much of a movie. You have an interesting curiosity. You don't have a really great film. And, uh, and Wells somehow had the confidence, the brashness. It's almost impossible to imagine nowadays. Yeah. Uh, Unless you're talking about just someone who's nuts like Tommy Wiseau, you know, who who thinks that they have what <laughs> it takes, really but they don't actually. Did
0: you really bring Tommy Wiseau into a Citizen Kane review?
1: Tommy Wiseau, I'm sure, would have done that himself. We're, we're here. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, all I'm, right. I am like am like Austin Wells.
0: Now I do want a remake um, featuring Tommy Wiseau yes.
1: as Kane. Well, if, if you, I'm sure, if you ask Tommy, that's what the room was supposed to be. It was. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so like Wells he he doesn't just put himself in the lead role and he doesn't just make himself the, the, the tent pole of the entire movie, but he yeah. puts himself in, you know, like the musical number at the at the newspaper where you know like the the, oh, the, yeah, yeah. the citizen theme the Citizen Kane theme song you know who is that man that one you know I mean that was I mean the that was it's covered by the sly. white stripes
0: who is that man and which is the entire plot of the movie uh,
1: yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and uh, you know and and he's dancing and kicking and I mean it's it's a very audacious performance
0: he succeeds very well in doing I think what their intention was was that you like Kane despite yourself. Despite knowing mm. what you know, what he who he becomes and what happens, he is extraordinarily charming. You, I mean, if you met this guy in real life, you would be like the other people who allowed themselves to become close to him, become friends. Ultimately, to be betrayed by the very things that you knew you were going to be betrayed by eventually anyway. I yeah. mean, Jedediah knows... Everything about this guy—he went to school with him. All of this stuff—he still becomes a f- alcoholic, <laughs> as far as I can tell. You know, he he misses the uh, his old friend who had uh, the you know what was it the seven principles?
1: Yeah, that, that yeah. they
0: established at the beginning. Um, because uh, I, I I don't think we really explain this. Kane is a newspaper magnet. He makes his money. Um, in the newspaper business, he has newspapers throughout the country, but he practices yellow journalism. And it be- wears his fr- his school chum down over the years to the point in which he can't take it anymore. He, he, he wants to be sent to another bureau. He doesn't want to be around him anymore. There's a period of time where they don't talk to each other. Yeah. And it ends with him uh, firing him and giving him a $25,000 check which he then te- which his friend then tears up it is it is a tragic end to two people who we get to see you know they don't just say oh they were friends we get to see them be friends that we get to yeah. see why they why they're friends and, and how he acknowledges that he has problems <laughs> that, you know, he's always, always been a jerk and he's always, you know, he, no one can stop him and he thinks very highly of himself. But when you meet Cain, especially when he's younger, you can't help but go, God, I would be, it would be hard not to be his friend. You know, I've had friends like that, that I've had to walk away yeah. from who is like, they're really great, but they're bad for me <laughs> and they're bad to other people.
1: So. well i think that that 's one of the things that that makes kane such a such a magnetic figure i mean uh, obviously the the central part of that is that Wells is just fantastic in the role yeah. but you know yeah he is he's he makes him an incredibly likable character, even though you see him growing into this monster yeah and 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 I think wells the director and uh wells the the writer and Mankowitz the writer. Yeah. Make make him into not just a likable figure but he, make him into a genuinely tragic figure. Where even Yeah, though, you
0: know, when you say monster, I was like in, it's a very human monster, a oh, man yeah. who is so consumed by his insecurities and his need to be right and his, you know, desperation to seemingly make people happy whether they want to be happy or not. <laughs>
1: you yeah. Know? Yeah, and yeah, exactly, to to make things the way you know, there's there's you get a glimpse of it in that uh, that famous montage of him and and his wife at the breakfast table. Oh my gosh! There, yeah. there are there are the you know, those whip pans that denote the passage of time, and they get further and further apart. The table mm-hmm. gets bigger and bigger, and and at the end of that, his wife says, "But Charles, people will think," and then he cuts mm-hmm. her off short and says, "They'll think what I tell them, to, tell think. them to think." Yeah, and that's sort of that that's that's almost part of his life's purpose is mm-hmm. to make people think what he tells them to think to make people happy because he wants them to be happy yeah. they're going to be happy in the way he makes them happy and they're going to you know he wants to control everything and mm-hmm. he feels like he has the power to do it so why isn't why isn't the rest of the world cooperating you know
0: yeah jed uh, jed says um when, after uh kane loses the election because of a scandal he says yeah. you you know you think people should uh you know you say people you say that you love the people and you feel that because of that the people should love you as a matter of fact as if he, he implies that because i'm giving you this gift i should there should be reciprocity in that yeah. and and um it, this is one of those movies that doesn't have a villain even boss jim who exposes his um infidelity with uh with a singer mhm they just don't have him show up and be bad guy. You know, I'm bad guy and I've ruined your, your chance at governor. He says out loud, I have a, I have a, a family. I'm trying to save my family, my reputation. Right. And you get this idea that maybe Kane has been persecuting a man for his own political benefit falsely. Kane seriously talking about sending this guy to jail.
1: Yeah. That's practically have, his whole campaign. Yeah, and we have no evidence.
0: To yeah, we're gonna send him to prison. He's screaming yeah. it down the down the. Uh, or if you miss the jump cut where he's obviously not saying anything and he's screaming that he's gonna send him to Sing Sing. This is one of the little <laughs> one of the little bloopers in the movie. Um, but you get the idea that maybe this guy. Is being wrongly accused, or maybe he's guilty of some of it, or maybe he's guilty like Cain is guilty for his infidelity. But right. he explains himself. He says, "Look, I'm defending not just my, my livelihood or my income or my governor's seat. I'm, I'm defending my family." He said, "You know, he put uh, this. He put forward, you know, when my kids see a picture of me dressed as a convict in your newspaper." And it kind yeah. of balances everything out. There's no one, there's no one in this movie to hate, not really. His mom's a little cold, <laughs> but <laughs> um, other than that, there's no villain here. You know, when you when you first when I. I there was a time where I thought, well maybe they're thinking that the reporters are villainous because they're they're portrayed in the movie as very shadowy we never see their faces. The guy yeah. who's going around interviewing he's, he's a non entity and that is not him that is not a statement on the media saying that they're this faceless evil thing although I suppose you could interpret it that way it's more of a a, a story um, device because these people aren't important these right. people are, don't don't have anything to do with Kane's story. They're trying to find out, just like you are. So we're going to make them as transparent and and uh, uh, not. Uh, you're going to have no memory of them after the after the story's done, and that's the point. They're they're just basically there to go around and talk. You know, this one guy uh, Thompson is to go around and talk to people. Um, the other thing I noticed, because I, I just watched this again uh, this morning. There are lots of little things that are placed in places very much on purpose. The first time he meets Susan, he's invited up to her her little boarding house room, and they keep showing. Um, they a lot of the shots are through a mirror, and one shot specifically is when she is talking to Kane. Kane can't even be seen, and mm-hmm. it's her dressing mirror. And there are pictures, and there's all this other stuff and perfume, and she's radiant. She's gorgeous in this, in this shot. And then right next to her, right in the shot, is that frickin' snow globe. Yeah. That is used later on. And that's someone paying attention to <laughs> the story. <laughs> That is that is someone who 's like, "Oh, this snow globe's important let 's stick it in here 'll well, be cool we 'll put that in there oh, I know let 's have a dissolve shot from her eye after she gets slapped to the all seeing eye in the window of the estate. There are lots of little
1: yeah.
0: you know subtle, fantastic things in this movie, um, mm-hmm. and a lot of funny things, a lot of humor, a lot more humor than I remember the i haven 't seen the movie probably in about ten years um up until getting ready for this review, and there's yeah. a lot more humor in it than I
1: remember. Um, well, like, like you said at the beginning, I mean, it's a very watchable movie. You yeah. know, I mean, on the one hand, I would say it's almost like the it's the greatest film school movie ever made because there's so much you can learn from it just from watching it and taking it apart. And but at the same time, it's a really enjoyable movie. It's not something that you sit there and you feel like you're doing homework watching it. It's it's it it pulls you along really well. It moves very well. It has really engaging performances. It's not like a heavy, serious, you know, sort of the stereotypical, like, pretentious art house movie where you sit there and go, I know I'm supposed to like this. I know. (laughs) Uh, But I just can't get into it. I mean, it's not that at all. It's a very engaging movie. Yeah. Uh, And yeah, one of the things that that I always loved was uh, because, you know, yeah, there are all those little visual uh, you would almost today you would almost call them easter eggs little things that yeah. just that reminds you that reminds you that the movie was directed by someone who actually read the script which nowadays it seems it there some movies happening. are directed by people. some people it seems like some movies just are directed by people who haven't read the script right uh, but uh but yeah there's all, there are all there are there are many of those and in that scene on the street when kane uh, meets when her he gets yeah, when he gets splashed with mud, there's a line of dialogue where he mentions that he was on his way uh,
0: to go get to, the stuff. Yeah, they start talking yeah, about his
1: mother. To go get, yeah, to go get some stuff that belonged to his mother, and we, and then uh, when you find out at the end what Rosebud is—that Rosebud is his childhood sled—you start to think, well, maybe if he had not been interrupted and he had made it to that warehouse back then, maybe he would have, you know, satisfied that longing. Or yeah. you know, close that loop back then as opposed to on his deathbed. And it's just one of those things that, you know, sh- again, shows that it was the movie was made, it was written and it was shot very painstakingly. Yeah. Uh they had a very good idea of who Kane was and of mm-hmm. what his his story was about. And uh they would drop little things in there, these little pivot points where it's like, Oh, if, if okay, if he had gone that way instead of that way, how would his life have turned out? Right. You know, and the fact that the movie, when you encourages you and to think about it like that, and holds up under that sort of thought, and yeah. actually becomes more interesting when you think about it that way, speaks very well for it as well. Um, I wanted to mention, because a couple of people when I when I posted on Facebook about this mm-hmm. uh, earlier today, they said, "Are you going to talk about the plot hole?" Uh, and yeah. I, there is one really huge plot hole in Citizen Kane that I personally don't care about at all because when I watch the movie, it doesn't enter into my mind unless I'm thinking about it already. So I don't really think it's that important. But it's who actually heard him say Rosebud. His last word is Rosebud. He appears to be alone in the room and he whispers it and then all of a sudden everybody knows that his last word was Rosebud. Now, I personally don't give a shit. (laughs) I'm, I'm...
0: yeah, here's the I've... thing about plot holes. If the movie is good, if the story is strong, if the uh, if um, the overall sen- the thing that you walk away... Plot holes are glaring when a movie is bad. That's, when a yeah. movie is good, you overlook them. Raiders of the Lost Ark is filled with a gigantic plot hole that I didn't realize until 20 years after that movie had come out. <laughs> and I went, oh yeah, how did he stay alive? outside of a submarine as it traveled <laughs> across the Mediterranean. Um, plot hold and here here's the other thing. The 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 butler says that he heard him say lots of crazy things. Yeah. I hear him say lots of crazy things. Oh by the way I'm a scumbag.
1: And <laughs>
0: and I heard him say a rosebud after he thrashed his girlfriend apartment and oh no, they got married. After he thrashed yeah. Susan's apartment. And he says he heard him say it after, you know, in the room, which would imply that he was in the room and that was, he was not alone. We don't right. see his whole room at the beginning of the movie. We just see a close-up of his face, the dropping of the the globe, and then the nurse comes in. Um, and then the, the butler could have been there and maybe heard it. Um, because someone i guess could have been calling it. it it it's kind of left to interpretation if you want to interpret it as a plot hole, fine but i don't care <laughs> i don't yeah,
1: I, yeah the to, yeah the the to me the correct answer is that it doesn't matter yeah uh yeah, i mean yeah you you can you can come up with an with a, a justification for it or you can kind of you know yeah well maybe the butler was in the room okay fine i don't care I mean, if if it's if it is a legitimate plot hole and it's something that was just an oversight on the part of Wells, it doesn't matter because, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would have put it almost exactly the same way you did. In, mm-hmm. Plot holes in good movies don't matter. Plot holes are only important in bad movies. Yeah, uh, and in, in a movie like this, in a good movie. Um, it's not even—it's not even something that you, as the audience member, at least speaking for myself, it's not even something that, that I, as the audience member, even have to exert any effort toward. You know, yeah. people say like, "Oh, you just gloss over plot holes." No, I don't. I just—the I, movie does that for me. It's yeah. a mark of good filmmaking that I don't notice it, and if I do notice it upon further inspection, I don't really care. Right. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's that's basically that's that, that's that basically it. The other thing that maybe some people have noticed is that we're not talking about the whole Hearst connection or any of the other stuff in regards to mm-hmm. this, and that's because I am bored to shit with people talking <laughs> about William Randolph Hearst in connection to this film, or its film history, or how it was suppressed, or blah-de-de-blah-de-de-blah. This is a review of the movie itself. If you're interested in that, there are a shit ton of documentaries. Um, I have one right here that came in with my set of Citizen Kane called The Battle for Citizen mm-hmm. Kane. Yeah. If you want to investigate that, that's fine. But once we start talking about it, it's not much more than gossip. And we're not here to gossip about movies. We're here to review them. <laughs> and um, as we're getting closer and closer to the recommendations time, remember, the guys, this is a rigidly timed hour of entertainment for you, um, I would like to, to just do a couple other things, and it always surprises me every time I watch this movie. No music for the for the title of the film. It just yeah. says the Mercury Theater, you know, RKO with the D-D-D, and then it's completely silent for the uh, the Mercury Theater, I can't remember what it, what it says, but Mercury Theater is just white letters on a black screen, and then it says Citizen Kane, white letters on a black screen, mm-hmm. I've seen it a billion times in a billion art house films, and it... Surprises me every time because you always expect movies from the 1940s and 1930s to start off with dun 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 dun, and then have the have the wipe where it comes across, <laughs> and you know it it was one of those things that you know how many people in 1941's audience when they sat down to watch the movie going oh, oh the sounds out oh where's my where's my big stirring dun 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 um. And there was one other thing, and now I can't remember because I'm so tickled about the the opening of the movie.
1: <laughs> well, I, you know, <laughs> the, the the thing about the movie that I love uh, stylistically probably the most, and we've we've talked about it here and there, but I don't think we've ever quite uh, nailed it down. Is just I love the way, and there he does it in so many different ways. I love the way Wells, as a director, makes use of the space. Uh, he does it with the camera movement that we've mentioned. He does it with the with the way he shows his sets. There are multiple very important scenes in this mm-hmm. movie that make use of enormous interior sets. Oh yeah. Uh, there's the I, I, the uh, the vault when Thompson goes to read uh, the, pa- the 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 chapters from. Oh,
0: the gigantic uh, room. The gigantic yeah, this, room. The yeah. Table.
1: Yeah. It's and then there's the 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 sort of the great hall in. Uh, Kane's home with the fireplace. With this
0: fireplace uh, actually burning whole trees in it, it
1: seems. Yeah, like. It's, it's just this massive... And then there's the, the, the great corridor where he walks past the camera in that famous shot with the mirrors. Uh, it just seems know. to go on forever and has an incredibly high ceiling. There's just It uses space in a way that he uses uh, had rarely space. been done.
0: He uses the space to imply motive... Um, You know, people are constantly coming in and out of shadow at certain points. The shot where he's confronting boss Jim and Susan's there and his wife is there. Um, They come into shadow. There's a great shot of the two of them standing next to each other. The wall is lit up and bright. They're kind of in this gray area. And it's that moment where you realize they're both the same basic person. They're both corrupt in their own way. And (laughs) they're both kind of justifying what they do to each other at the same time. He uses composition, color, shot, the placement of a character when a character becomes small or a character becomes overshadowed. There's a, a scene where Susan is complaining that she doesn't want to do this. She didn't want to become an opera singer. She's being, you know, she's being horrible things. And he's, yeah. he's going along with it. He's just blah, blah. And then he gets exposed by this thing in his past. And he just steps forward and he's he's being very direct and he's going to, you're going to do it because I didn't say you're going to do it. And her face falls into sh- falls under his shadow. He's not even in mm-hmm. shot. And her, you know that he, that kind of storytelling doesn't get told anymore. <laughs> yeah, it seems like people are afraid to use composition and lighting to help you. Set tone and mood, and and give just as kind of undercurrent of, of of subtext to everything that you're to the story that you're telling.
1: Yeah. Well, and the tragedy is that uh, it seems like ma- mainstream movies, big screen blockbuster movies, are, nowadays are made at the level so that the stupidest person in the theater will know what's going on at all times. Like, there'll never be a moment where they're confused or they're perplexed by anything. Mm -hmm. So everything's laid out flat and told you repeatedly over and over and over. And the, the tragedy of that is, as Citizen Kane, I think, demonstrates... You can make a movie that is rich and complex and subtle and and uses all the tools available to a film director to Mm -hmm. tell us these things or to show us these things without just having characters talking about it or having it just flat out be told to the audience. And you can do it in a way that still allows you to make an open, engaging movie where it, it doesn't feel remote and it doesn't feel stodgy or you know cerebral, it's, mm-hmm. it's still a very charming, charismatic uh, gripping movie, but it and has it, all these things going on
0: yeah and human to a point in which anyone will get it.. Yeah. You know, he's not having an existential crisis, you know, he's, he's not in a fugue state where we, we have no idea what massively complex uh, um, things that he's trying to think of. His, his foibles are everyone's foibles, mm-hmm. and everyone's feelings is everyone's feelings, and that's that's one of the things that makes the film interesting. So, uh, to sum up, real quick, is Citizen Kane the greatest movie ever made? In my opinion, no. But it is one of the most important films ever made, um, especially to cinema today. And that's saying a lot for something that was made so long ago. You, if, you've, if you see Citizen Kane, and then you watch movies after that, you will start to see where things get lifted. There's stuff from Raiders of the Lost Ark that are in this movie. The the, the, the above <laughs> shot of all of the, 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 the merchandise and everything else. Um, things get... Lifted from this movie all the time, and um, I highly recommend that you, if you have not seen it and you love film, to go out and see Citizen Kane. And if you have seen it, but you haven't seen it in a long time, see it again. It's everywhere. Um, it's two ninety nine dollars 99 on, on, on YouTube, yeah. it's two ninety nine dollars on, on uh, Amazon, which also speaks volumes for the fact that it's not an Amazon Prime. You still have to pay for it to, get, to be able to watch it so it it is good in that respect it's good enough to never be free um
1: steve <laughs> that's what a great endorsement good enough yeah. to never be free <laughs> um, i yeah i i would say i would echo everything you just said jason and i would just say if you love movies and for whatever reason you have not seen citizen kane uh especially if you love american film uh it's the one movie that you have to see as soon as possible if you have somehow escaped seeing it and you fancy yourself a movie person see citizen kane and uh it, it's it, yeah it's it's one of the essential movies i mean there are movies that uh sort of you can you can chart the history of of narrative cinema by certain films, and Citizen Kane is one of those really big. Turning points where uh, it's uh, it, it's it's like a birth of a nation without all the troubling racism. <laughs> <laughs> it's just as innovative in its way and just as important as that film was. But you don't have to feel bad for watching it
0: because <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to wash afterwards. <laughs> right.
1: You don't have to say, "Well, okay, it was good, but you know, to a point." You can just okay. say it was good. So
0: that's <laughs> uh, that's a review for Citizen. Uh, that's our review, and now we're going to go to the recommendations. These are going to be films that either you probably didn't see, maybe never heard of, or you know, older films that maybe you haven't seen but have but have heard of. And uh, my recommendation this week, very quickly, is going to be uh, the 2003 film of Zatoichi. Um, for those that don't know, Zatoichi was a series of films back in the 1960s about a fat blind former samurai who disguises his sword in his cane, and he basically travels town to town, and uh, he poses as a masseur, so he uh, uh, massages everyone in town, everyone goes to see the masseur, and he learns all the secrets, and he learns people's stories, and he he uh, uh, eventually slaughters a whole lot of people in every movie. Um, in 2003, Takeshi Katano um, brought back that character and made Zatoichi. It I'm going to do this really quick because I want uh, Steve to get his recommendation. Um, it is violent. The CG effects are, are kind of bad, but the story is one of the things that, they, that really kind of ropes you in and pulls you in. It's a mod- more modern story. It features characters that were never featured in the, in the, the, the series from uh, the 50s and 60s. Um, uh, Beat Katano is uh, the guy who plays the lead in the film, he plays Zatoichi. He does a fantastic job. There are a lot of supporting characters that do a great job. If you want to watch A Blind Man Kill a Shitload of Yakuza and get a musical number at the end, go see you can, I Right now, I think it's um, on uh, Netflix. I think. I'm not sure. But uh, go see it. That is spelled Z-A-T-O-I-C-H-I
1: uh, 2003. Steve? Well... I would I'm gonna stick with Orson Welles uh for my recommendation and I'm gonna recommend one of my favorite Wells movies that maybe not everybody has seen. Uh it's from the same era as Kane. It's still sort of young Wells. Uh and it's a, it's another film that he himself directed, and it's called The Lady from Shanghai. And uh it co-starred Wells' wife at the time, Rita Hayworth. And it also God, has another
0: God, what a lucky son of a bitch. I know, right?
1: <laughs> and it also has another uh great old-school actor that named Everett Sloan, who was in uh, lots of films and was in television in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's another sort of a film noir thing. Uh, last time, my recommendation was uh, Out of the Past, which is a classic film noir, and Lady from Shanghai is sort of in the, the same... Uh, category. Wells plays uh, an Irish sailor and he plays the whole movie with an Irish accent. So if you've ever wanted to see young Orson Welles do like an Irish accent for 90 minutes, Lady from <laughs> Shanghai is for you. Uh, and <laughs> and he gets involved in like a murder plot. There's a a, a rich lawyer who wants Wells' character to uh, to f- help him fake his death and then they're going to frame someone else for it. And it, 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 it. It all gets very mixed up and complicated as film noir plots tend to do. Um, but the real reason to see the movie other than just the joy of seeing Orson Welles as uh, a young, vibrant, incredibly charismatic performer uh, is the the climactic scene that takes place that is staged in a, a hall of mirrors. And uh, Welles as a director in Kane used mirrors just incredibly well for that for for a, cu- a couple of shots, particularly the the corridor shot where he's walking down the hall and he's sort of multiplied into infinity by the mirrors, um, there's uh, an even more surreal, very complicated uh, staging of of a, a shootout in a hall of mirrors at the end of The Lady from Shanghai. That is a really influential, very 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 much imitated. Uh, shot series of shots and it's so well done it's the way he uses mirrors to create uh um like multiple frames within the frame or to to do uh lap dissolves or double exposures with one person in the mirror in the foreground and another person in the mirror in the background uh it's just a really and again it gives it a very surreal effect uh so i would recommend the movie the whole movie just for that uh, but the movie itself is a really good example of film noir and of young Orson Welles, too, uh, and him I, uh, still able to, to direct a movie and more or less do his own thing before he kind of hit that skid part of his career where he had trouble doing the movies he wanted to do. Uh, but yeah, that's my recommendation, The Lady from Shanghai. And it's available on Amazon and Google Play. Uh, you, you have to buy it, unfortunately. It's 10 bucks. You can't just rent it, but uh, it's Like we said, well it.
0: if it's... If it's so good that it'll never be free
1: <laughs> exactly but it's well worth it So,
0: alright guys that's it thanks for joining us again um, uh, we love doing this um, I know a lot of people are expecting us to review things like Edge of Tomorrow and a bunch of other boring bullshit that's out in the theaters right now but I would rather gouge my own eyes out than review a Tom Cruise movie right now <laughs> if it turns out it's going to be good then I'll see it on DVD Blue download whatever um but if you guys have a recommendation for something that you want us to review whether it's currently out now or in the past uh please leave a comment down in the comment section i promise i read these things even if you disagree with that in fact i like it when people disagree with us in regards to our reviews um so speaking for myself thank you for tuning in steve do you have anything to say to the the audience before we leave
1: thanks for watching everybody
0: Thanks, everybody, and uh, enjoy the rest of the afternoon and go see a movie this week. Late Seating is a Let Me Listen podcast production featuring Steve Shives and Jason Harding. Produced by Jason Harding. Theme music, Rollin' at Five, composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. You can find more Let Me Listen podcast productions at our website at www.letmelistenpodcast.com. You can also find us on Stitcher, iTunes, or just about anywhere you download podcasts. Late Seating is a listener-supported podcast. If you would like to support Late Seating or any of the other Let Me Listen productions for as little as $1 a month, please visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash listen And...